Matthew chapter 9, we pick up things with verse 9. We read that as Jesus passed on from there, and within the context, the flow of the narrative, uh, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. He has picked up kind of where his ministry in this important city had left off. He comes to the house of Simon Peter, and he teaches a Bible study. A Bible study that ends up being interrupted by four friends who dig a hole through the ceiling and lower their paralytic friend down before Jesus. There is a group of scribes and Pharisees that are present. Jesus looking at this man, seeing his true ailment. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Be of good, be of good courage. And then the skeptics in the crowd are like, well, Jesus, you just took the easy way out. You know, this man is, is laying there before you. He's lame, he's paralyzed, and you forgive his sins, but what about his legs? What about his arms? What about this paralysis? And so Jesus, perceiving, understanding the skepticism there within some of the crowd, he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power, that when I say your sins are forgiven, that I have the authority, the power to say such a thing, and it be true, well, arise, take up your bed, and walk. And the man immediately arose, took up his bed, and walked. An amazing story. I, I should add, just as I've continued to, to think about it, um, how different uh, Jesus' approach in this particular scene is uh, to most churches. You know, when, when people come with a condition, you know, our focus ends up being the outward condition, the problem that the person might have, might be exhibiting, as opposed to the real cause. You know, we're all the time within the church addressing the manifestation of causes. Jesus was able to look beyond the condition and get right to the heart of the matter. I mean, what good would it be if the man was healed of his paralysis, his condition, only to then die and go to hell? Jesus, knowing his real issue, sin, says, son, your sins are forgiven. He looks beyond the condition. I think what a great object lesson for the church. So often we get so wrapped up in the outward manifestation of what is really a sin condition. Addressing the real issue. So within the context of this particular story, Jesus passes on from there. We're told, and, and again, this is Matthew presenting us uh, his firsthand account. We're told that Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. You know, it's interesting that when you think about your testimony, you know, if, if we were to ask, hey, why don't you write down your testimony? Paragraph, two paragraphs, maybe a chapter, a book, you could write about your own testimony. Matthew, recording the ministry of Jesus, gets to this juncture where he's going to present his own firsthand account of Jesus and his interactions with the Lord, and it's one verse. <laughs> You know, it's one verse. It's very simple. There was a man, Matthew, sitting at a tax office. Jesus said, follow me. And that man, me, I got up and I followed him. And that's it. I mean, that's the story. It's kind of an interesting presentation of a personal account, really in its brevity. And when we read about it, it's easy to kind of get this, this really 
like odd reaction to it. As if, for example, this was Matthew's first encounter. And sometimes we kind of read into the story that there was something kind of magical or mystical occurring. That Jesus, you know, is, is floating by the tax office. And his eyes connect with Matthew, who's counting his coin. And without anything being said, this transference occurs between Matthew and Jesus. Matthew's awed, wowed, who is this man? Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew, filled with faith, he's moved to action. He gives up everything, and he just follows Jesus. And you're like, wow, wow. I mean, that's faith. I mean, if that's true, yes, I guess in some regards that would be faith, but that's not exactly how things occurred. It's not really how things uh, took place. We're going to kind of address that particular topic, working backwards, just a little bit. And I want to start by just these two words that Jesus uses. He, he says, follow me. Now, within our cultural context, that has a, a very simple meaning. Um, it's, it's not very loaded. It's not dynamic. It's not um, multifaceted as it, as it would have been in that day. Within Jewish culture, you had rabbis. And these were renowned teachers of the scriptures. And these rabbis would travel the area, going from synagogue to synagogue. Jesus being a rabbi was one of them, but there were many. Many of these rabbis who would develop a following. Kind of like your favorite rock band coming to town. You were a groupie of a particular rabbi. You considered yourself, to, to a degree, a, a disciple. You had a job, you worked a vocation, you had a family, but man, that rabbi, you were, you, you had a bit of an allegiance to. You liked what he had to say, you liked his presentation of the scriptures, you liked his interpretation. You considered yourself, in a very elementary sense, a disciple of that particular rabbi. Again, you hadn't left your job, you hadn't, you know, quit to, to follow full time, you know, you, you weren't one of those weirdo hippies following the Grateful Dead around the country. But you had a, you had a, a, a loyalty. Uh, you gravitated to a, a particular rabbi. Now, within that culture, there was another classification of disciple. Uh, not a groupie, not someone that just would come or, or attend when you were in town, but, but somebody that, that really wanted to be part of the inner circle that was committed to, to laying aside a vocation and, and becoming um, something more official, more, more bona fide. Now, you couldn't just volunteer, like voluntarily be a disciple in that, in that context. Now, you could in its elementary form, but like in the next level of discipleship, you had to be invited by that particular rabbi. That rabbi would have to come to you, see something in you, and, and they would, to be a disciple, they would present an invitation. Will you follow me? That was the phrase that was used in its formal context. So when, when Jesus comes to Matthew and he says, follow me, it is loaded. Like Jesus is, is, is asking Matthew to do something dramatic, something specific. It's not just be a disciple, but be one of my disciples. Accept an offer for like an official internship. You'll travel with me. You'll sit at my feet. I will teach you to become what I am. Something formal. 
Now, within its context, there is an implication that this is not Matthew's first experience with Jesus. Again, with what we know from Matthew's own account. Matthew's a tax collector. He lives in Capernaum. Jesus, his headquarters is in Capernaum. You know, within its first century context, Capernaum is a big town. Within our context, it's really not. Everyone knows everyone else. Everyone's familiar with, with everyone else. Matthew has had quite a bit of experience already with Jesus. Case in point, the Gospel of Matthew, up to this point, chapter 9, records for us, yes, some things that Matthew wouldn't have known from a firsthand perspective. Matthew wasn't there when Jesus was born. You know, so he's getting the account of Jesus' birth, likely from Mary at a different time. Uh, some of the account of the interactions with John the Baptist, it's unlikely Matthew had been an eyewitness of. He's, you know, giving us an account probably from Peter, from, from Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, some of these other guys that were around the ministry of John that were there to see Jesus baptized. It's unlikely that Matthew was there, although he could have been. But up until this point within uh, the narration, Jesus' ministry, his focus there in Capernaum, even the Sermon on the Mount occurred on the hillside, basically outside of Capernaum. It's my thesis, and I operate, that Matthew had a lot of exposure to Jesus. That Matthew was very likely present for some of the miracles. Again, he, he records them for us. I think Matthew operated probably up until this point in that base level discipleship. He was interested in Jesus. I think it's very likely that Matthew was there in the previous story, in the home of Simon Peter. I think Matthew saw the man lowered down. Jesus looking at the man and forgiving his sins, and then this miracle occurring where he stands up and he walks. Could Matthew have been a disciple in the context of being on the sea, in the midst of the storm? A bit of a fish out of water. He's a tax collector. He's not a fisherman. But to see the miracle take place. And then the demon-possessed men. It's interesting to me that Matthew places, and again, he doesn't write with a, a hard-line chronology. But he does write generally chronological, presenting this narrative of Jesus with a purpose, but writing the story as it unfolds. He places his conversion, in this sense, his official calling, here in chapter 9. Meaning that he was there with, with, with Quill and, and Pad writing down the Sermon on the Mount, recording it. He's listened to, to the message of Jesus. He's been moved. He's interested. He's excited about the Lord. He's still a tax collector. You know, he's working his Monday through Friday, but he's going to the synagogue on, on, on Saturday to be within earshot of Jesus' word and his message to the point that in this moment when Jesus walks by the tax office, he looks, he's like, it's time. Eyes lock. And Jesus does what would have been really kind of an unthinkable thing. He invites a tax collector, this man Matthew, to be an official disciple. To follow me. Now in our introduction to this gospel, which again I know was many months ago, I noted that Matthew was also known by another name. In fact, this same account that's recorded in Mark and Luke referred to him by his God-given name, that being Levi. 
And within that context of his name, Matthew, Matthew's name being Levi, there are some conclusions that, that we can reach about the man. Now, a lot of this is circumstantial, but I think solid nonetheless. Being named Levi, it's very likely he's a Levite. I think that that's a reasonable link to make, which tells us something very interesting about, about Matthew. It tells us that he was part of the priestly class of Israel. Matthew, a Levite, would have grown up under a particular training, not to be a tax collector, we'll get to that in a moment, or to be a fisherman, or to be a carpenter. He grew up in a family of priests, trained to be a priest, to be a scribe, to potentially be a Pharisee or Sadducee or one of these political parties. He was educated. He was smart. We know that by his very writing, the, his writing style. He understood the Greek language. I won't bore you with the details, but Matthew grammatically is, is, a, is, is a brilliant presentation of Koine Greek. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's educated. Again, growing up within the framework, Matthew knew the scriptures. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel authors. In fact, he quotes more than all the other gospel authors combined of the Old Testament. We've seen examples of this throughout our, our reading thus far, where Matthew will, will present Jesus doing something, and he says, this was done so that it might be fulfilled, and then he'll quote the Old Testament reference. Again, Matthew is an expert of the Old Testament. He's fluent in the Old Testament scriptures. So that he's looking at Jesus, and he's, from an educated standpoint, can say, Jesus was fulfilling these promises, these prophecies of the Messiah, and he references them. He lists them in, in a way that, that Peter wouldn't have done in his record through Mark. Peter was not an educated rabbi in that, that context or religious figure. He's a fisherman. Luke was a Greek slave, didn't have the same type of familiarity with the Old Testament either. John would have had some education, but he's also a fisherman by trade. Matthew's very unique. He comes from a religious background. He's a Levite, Levi, which is interesting because he's not a priest when he's introduced to us. Instead, he's a tax collector, a tax collector. Now, I say tax collector, and even in our, our modern understanding, um, you don't have a lot of buddies that work for the IRS. They are lonely people. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to go out to dinner with someone working for the IRS because they're going to ask you, are you writing this off or not? Well, the tax code is such. Tax collectors. You know, even in our context, and you know, we have a, a negative perception of a, of a tax collector, a tax gatherer. Uh, way worse in the first century, way worse in the Galilee, in a Jewish culture. You see, for a Jew to be a tax collector, and, and again, who are you collecting taxes for? You are collecting taxes on behalf of the occupiers, the Romans, a people group that has you in their subjugation. They've conquered you. You see, a tax collector in that context, the Jews, 
would have viewed them as a traitor. You're working for the enemy. You're gouging the people on behalf of Rome. How dare you? Beyond that, the way that a tax collector operated equally didn't endear them to the population. To be a tax collector to start with was a bidding war. Like not anyone could be a tax collector. In fact, Rome would issue kind of an edict. They would say, you know, we're going to open a tax office there in Capernaum. This is a good location. We need a tax collector, or a series of tax collectors, and there would be a bidding war. If you wanted to be a tax collector, you would go to Rome, and you would say, I, I'm your man. I'm the guy for it, and uh, this is what I will pay for the privilege of having the license to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And thus, the people with the highest bid would often be chosen uh, by the, you know, the local in charge, to be the tax collector. So you would bid for the lease, highest bidder would get it. Which tells us also that Matthew had a bit of affluence in order to be a tax collector. Interesting, when you consider he's from the priestly class, Matthew, Levi, takes his inheritance to purchase the right to be a trader, to be a turncoat, to, to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And not only that, the way that it operated was, for all points and purposes, Sopranos-like. He's a glorified mobster. You see, Rome would issue a particular tax. Now, they had a 1% income tax, which you're thinking, man, that's awesome. Why couldn't we adopt a 1% income tax? But they taxed everything else. In fact, in the area, one of the, the main sources of taxation was the amount of fish that you would pull in. You'd bring your nets in, your boats would be full, and a guy like Matthew would show up at your boat, count the fish, and say, well, this is what you owe. Now, the, the amount of taxation was a private number, and it would flex from season to season. Rome would say, we need this much collected in taxes. That was a private number that you as the tax collector had. People didn't know. And the way that you then made your living was by upping the tax you would have to give Rome what they requested. Anything more you were able to gouge from the people lined your pockets. This is why you would pay for the lease. It's why you would find it a, a reasonable investment. Um, it's why you were therefore hated. Because you were making a living off the backs of men and women making a living. You were hated. You were despised. Uh, I imagine that men like Peter and John... James, Andrew, fishermen, did not have a favorable opinion of Matthew. Maybe Matthew was their tax collector, showing up when they would bring their boats in. There's Matthew, again, the tax collector, ripping off the people. It's interesting that a man that goes from being a Levite, growing up in the priestly class, not only kind of rejects his family calling, his, his natural path. But he goes about as far the other direction as you could humanly go. He goes from being a potential priest to being a tax collector on behalf of Rome. Now, how do you explain such a move within the heart of a person? Again, this is a, a measure of speculation but I think there's solid evidence for it. 
in addition to quoting the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel authors, Matthew's gospel presents a word, a description of the priestly, the religious class, he uses more than anyone else in the New Testament. He uses the word to describe the Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes, the religious establishment as hypocrites. Matthew's gospel uses the word hypocrite more than anyone else. So here we have a man that quotes the Old Testament more than anyone, but in regards to his kin, his family, the tribe in which he grew up, he calls them more than anyone else hypocrites. You see, I believe that Matthew had grown up disillusioned with Judaism. He knew the scriptures, and he knew how far the behavior of his kin had, had fallen. This is not the, the accurate manifestation of our calling before God. He hated it. In fact, there was very little in regards to the behavior of a tax collector for Rome than the money changers within the temple that were his family. Men and women who also gouged the people, not representing God accurately. He calls them hypocrites. So at some point, he's like, enough. I'm going to reject this, and you know, I'm going to get mine. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is this breath of fresh air because he's not a hypocrite. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he loved people. You see, Matthew saw in Jesus true religion. Everything that Judaism and the Old Testament pointed to, Jesus fulfilled. It was refreshing. This is what religion is missing, this relationship. It moved his heart. It stirred his interest. And so he begins to follow Jesus. Now he's a tax collector. He has no, he's not disillusioned that this would go any further. And yet Jesus one day comes by and he looks him in the eye and he says, Matthew, follow me. And it's amazing because we read, so he arose and followed. There's no hesitation. You know, earlier in the previous chapter, we were given the account of a disciple and a scribe who, who also came to Jesus, and they were like, hey, we want to follow you. And Jesus told the scribe, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head, basically saying, nope. Now, this is a scribe. I mean, it's good to have a lawyer on your team. But Jesus says, no, you're not ready you haven't counted the cost. You don't know what this really includes. And then a disciple, we're told, says, hey, I want to follow you, but i got to go bury my father first. I've got to take care of family obligations. And Jesus says, no, let the, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me, and, and the disciple doesn't. You have this occasion where two different guys are like, we want to follow you. And Jesus is like, you're not ready. You're not going to. But then he gets to Matthew. He says, follow me, and Matthew was absolutely 100% ready. Now, understand that in Matthew's context, when he leaves behind the tax office, this is a much different sacrifice than some of the other disciples. Like, for example, the fishermen 
that were called to leave their nets behind to follow Jesus. They do that, right? But what kind of cost did it really incur? Case in point, later on, Jesus will come back and what? Find them fishing again. Like they docked their boats, they hung up the nets. Maybe they had other people still running the business, but it was always there. It was still in the back. If this Jesus thing doesn't work out, we still have something to fall back on. Once Matthew leaves behind tax collecting, he can no longer ever go back to it. The lease is up. They're no longer going to issue it to a man like that. You see, Matthew counted the cost immediately. He said, this Jesus, I'll follow. And, and I think it's not an accident, again, that Matthew places this decision, this moment, directly following this interaction that Jesus has with the paralytic. Where Jesus looks beyond his circumstance, looks beyond his condition, and addresses something deep within the man, his sin. And when Jesus says, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, something leaked within Matthew. That's what I want to. And then the moment Jesus walks by and says, Matthew, follow me. He doesn't cash out. He doesn't make arrangements. There is an immediacy to what happens. He just leaves it, and he gets up, and he follows Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Guys, if Jesus would call Matthew, he can call anyone. And maybe he's calling you. You know, sometimes I think what keeps us from Jesus is the hypocrisy of those who claim to be his people. I think it's what kept Matthew away. It's why he became a tax collector. Hypocrisy. I can't tell you how often I'll hear someone say, I don't go to church. And, and the reason that they'll give is, man, Christians are hypocrites. Or that church, man, that church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. To which I say, yeah, it probably is. I mean, let's be real. We all fall very short. We fail to represent Jesus the way that we should. We do our best to be representatives of Jesus, but how often do we fail in such an endeavor? It's been said, if, if your problem with a church is that it's filled with hypocrites, that might be the best place for you to go because you'll fit in. To a degree, we're all hypocrites. And yet for some, they judge Jesus unfairly because of the way his followers sometimes act. And Matthew, I just point this out because Matthew is an encouragement because he presents for us a man that was able to look beyond at some point the hypocrisy. And he just saw Jesus. And when you see Jesus, there's no hypocrisy in Jesus. There's no wishy-washy in Jesus. There's no superficial religion in Jesus. Jesus is true. Don't judge Jesus by the failure of those that follow. Matthew was able to look beyond these things. And when Jesus said, follow me, 
He immediately responded. And it happened, verse 10. As Jesus sat at the table in the house, again, we have the definitive article, the house, and we kind of rely on some of the other accounts to reach the conclusion that this is Matthew's house. So following his conversion here, following him accepting this official position, leaving behind tax collecting to follow Jesus, they go to his house, which is not an abnormal thing with Jesus. Jesus was always bumming meals off of people. You know? Now, he would leave the leftovers to the disciples, but he was, you know, he, he loved to crash at people's houses. So Matthew, I'll follow, follow me. All right, where are we going? We're going to go to your house. That seems like a logical place for us to land. And so they go to Matthew's house, and we're told that behold, and again, I've mentioned it before, but I'll note it again, a, a word that Matthew uses more than anyone else, behold, is the idea is think about this. Hey, you should take a moment and really consider what I'm about to say. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You need to understand within the context, eating a meal was kind of a very sacred exercise. Really within most Eastern culture, but, but particularly Jewish culture. And, and it really goes back, the, the foundational premise, to the law. Because in part of the law, when it came to personal holiness, was this connection to what one ate. What goes into a man, according to the law, played a role in, in cleanliness or uncleanness. What you, what you ate could, in turn, actually defile a person. Such there was, within the law, chapters based on dietary restrictions. You can eat this, you can't eat that. The idea is that if you ate something unclean, it would make you unclean. Well, the Jews took that concept one step further and kind of their cultural practices. Again, not a biblical idea, but, but something that they kind of extrapolated from the dietary restrictions, that if, if what I ate could defile me, then logically who I eat with could also defile me because the way that we eat was communal. We would have bowls of food, and we would share. That's how the meals would function. They would sit around a table. They, they wouldn't sit in a chair like we do. They would sit more on a pillow. And, and it was a whole thing. There was bowls of food that were brought out. <clears throat> you often ate with your fingers. You would take um, a, of the same meal that someone else would take. There was a very communal, intimate affair when it came to eating. You didn't eat with just anyone. In fact, if you weren't willing to identify yourself in a very personal way, you wouldn't eat with any individual. Why? Because you were claiming oneness with the person. What I'm eating is becoming part of me. It's from the same bowl that you're eating that's becoming part of you. Us eating together mean that we're becoming one. Thus, if you're eating with someone that's unclean, you wouldn't eat with them because they would defile you. Now, not a biblical idea, but one that's kind of extrapolated out from the dietary guidelines. And so you have Jesus here doing what a rabbi would have never done. 
and not just a rabbi, but, but really anyone that was religious, anyone that had a personal holiness or piety to them. Jesus specifically, intentionally, went and ate with tax collectors and sinners. And this word sinner, within its, its, its context, is a very broad uh, word used to describe kind of the commoner. The person that, that wasn't, re- maybe you were religious, but you weren't super pious. You weren't like the Pharisees. You weren't like those serious about their religion. You were kind of a cultural Christian. You were kind of on the fringe. And yet Jesus shared a table with traitors, tax collectors, people that had rejected Judaism, and sinners. And he breaks bread. He eats with them. And logically, this brings up a question from the Pharisees. They go to the disciples, and they says, why does Jesus do this? The implication being, we don't do this for logical reasons. Why would he defile himself? By keeping such company, by eating with such people. Now, I I should maybe take one step back here and say, I I love the fact that Matthew sets up the shindig. You know, Matthew has just experienced the incredible grace of God. Matthew has experienced something genuine, something authentic, a real encounter with Jesus, something that changes his life. To the point that he's willing to to leave behind his tax collecting. He's going to follow Jesus. He has dedicated his life to this rabbi. No matter where Jesus goes, he will follow. He's given it all up. And immediately Jesus is like, let's go hang out at your house. And Matthew's like, great. I know a lot of other people that need to hear from you. That need to encounter you. That need a connection with you. And so he jumps up, creates a Facebook group of tax collectors sends it out on Instagram, hey, you sinners, come to my house. Jesus is there, and the table is open. And people responded. And again, this is not without context. People know about Jesus. People have had experiences with Jesus. People have, they've seen Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is willing to come into the home of a tax collector, it blows their mind, and they have to come But the Pharisees, they don't understand. And we're told that Jesus, verse 12, he heard their question. And again, the question was directed at the disciples, who don't answer it, by the way, because they probably don't know how at this point. I I could see Peter be like, this Levi cat, I don't get that one. And not only that, but, but we'll be introduced to another character. You have a, a Simon who's called the Zealot in Jesus' crew, who's a revolutionary aimed at ridding the area of the Romans and those Jews who have turncoated, right? It, it's the equivalent of like, you know, picking your team and having, I'm going to have the tax collector who's a traitor with Simon the Zealot, who likes to kill traitors. I think they're a good team, a good combination. It's it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre collection. Levi, you would ask Levi, but Jesus, he hears, and he said to them, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus adds, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One, one of the things that I love about Jesus, and this might rub people the wrong way, sorry, <clears throat> this is what I like about Jesus, is his like subtle sarcasm. Like Jesus was kind of sarcastic at times. I mean, look back at the text, don't miss it. He, he tells them, hey, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What is he saying? He's actually saying, uh, you've misdiagnosed yourself. Why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Well, because I'm a physician and they're sick. That's why I don't hang out with you guys, because you're so well. And then he adds to the hilarity of the sarcasm by saying, and this is to the religious leaders, the experts. He says, you know what? Go and learn this. Learn what this means. And he quotes directly from Hosea 6. I desire mercy, the Lord speaking, and not sacrifice. He's like, you guys wouldn't even be asking me this question if you'd studied your Bibles. You're asking my disciples a question you should already have the answer for. You should understand this if you knew the scriptures. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And I am blown away by the fact that Jesus, in explaining why he would come and, and minister to tax collectors and sinners, and, and, and really the hypocrisy in the fact that what the religious leaders were missing was their own brokenness, their own lack of holiness. The Bible, it's clear that none are righteous, no, not one. The reason they miss Jesus, the reason they miss their Savior, is because they didn't understand their need for salvation. Their religious works, they had gotten so tied up, and I'm right with God because I do this, I do this, I do this, and I don't do that and that and that. I'm cool with God, because I'm better than tax collectors and sinners. They're sick, as a result, I'm not. And Jesus is like, you're as sick as they are, you just don't realize it. I would also break bread with you, but you're ignorant of your own need. And as a result, you're not effectively representing God. And then he quotes from Hosea. That's not an accident. If you're unfamiliar with the prophet Hosea, one of the most bizarre callings ever given by God, one of the most interesting stories. God is at this point trying to articulate to the people, his people, what their sin and idolatry and wickedness, what it was doing to his own heart, how he really felt about it. And, and so, so what happens? He tells the prophet Hosea, you go marry this gal Gomer. I know that's you know, not exactly the gal, good Christian man should go marry, but go marry her. And she's going to cheat on you and leave you and whore around town. And you do that. And then the story of Gomer is that, that she ends up, they have kids, he takes care of the kids, she's running around town, sleeping with anyone that will sleep with her, ruining her life. Jose is there, waiting patiently, loving regardless. 
She finally hits such rock bottom that she can no longer pay her debtors, and so she's, she's stripped naked, brought out into the market, and is going to be sold to the highest bidder. And God tells Hosea, go and purchase her and bring her home and love her. And the whole idea is that the children of Israel were playing the harlot. God had married them. He had made them his bride. But they were whoring themselves. They were running around behaving deplorably. And yet what was God's heart towards the sinner, towards Israel, towards the people? It was the heart of Hosea. He says, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God was willing to pay the the price of redemption to purchase his bride, to love her. And so Jesus is saying, guys, if you really understood the heart of God as the Pharisees, then you would be eating with tax collectors and sinners because that's the heart of God. That God came to save those who were lost, to save those who were sick. The only thing that will keep you from the healing of Jesus is your pride and inability to say, I need help. Tax collectors knew it. The sinners were aware of it. Jesus had much he could do. You know, it's interesting that Jesus didn't ask anything of Matthew before calling him. He didn't ask Matthew, hey, here's a list of things you need to do to clean up your mess, to make yourself better, No, he just said, follow me. Just follow me. You see, what's interesting about the idea of Jesus is, yes, he was identifying with sinners. And we are told in Scripture that Jesus on the cross became sin. He took upon himself our sin. In much of the same way, it was illustrated by Jesus reaching out and touching the leper before he said, be cleansed that he's willing to take upon himself our wickedness, our sin, our depravity, our insecurity, our brokenness. But the transference flows the other way as well. You see, Jesus takes from us our sin and then he gives back his righteousness. You see, friends, that's how you're made right. Not by what you do, but by what Jesus does. On your behalf, he's willing to come into your life to identify with you, the sinner, to identify with the person that's lost, to take your junk upon himself and in turn impart in you something foreign, something incredible, something you could never attain or achieve or earn. It's a blessed gift, his spirit, his righteousness, his position, Matthew, basically a gangster, someone that had rejected the religion of his upbringing. And then he met Jesus. And he saw something in Jesus that was true, that was real, that was tangible. Enough that he counted the cost. And he said, I'm okay with my life forever changing. Are you? And there's a lot of people that hang around Jesus. In fact, 
We're going to look at a story next week where Jesus ends up in a crowded street, shoulder to shoulder, and a lady with a flow of blood for 12 years reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops, and he turns, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, who touched you? We're shoulder to shoulder in a mosh pit. Everyone is touching me. And yet there's a difference between being around Jesus and reaching out and touching Jesus in faith. There's a lot of people today that hang around Jesus. But there are very few that reach out and touch the hem of his garment. And good grief, I'm getting ahead of myself and laying out the application of the next passage, which which is the danger of not having notes. But anyway, Matthew. Hey, if the law has left you empty and has made you feel condemned and unworthy and inadequate, and you're like, I can't do it, that's the right place to be. Because Jesus says, you don't have to. I've already done it. And I want you to join me at my table. Jesus, much different than the law. And for Matthew, the moment he met Jesus, he didn't worry about the hypocrites. He wasn't following the hypocrites. He was following the Savior. So Father, Lord, that's what we do this morning. Lord, we...